good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome. We're absolutely delighted uh, to see you here. Uh, my name is Barbara Roach, and I have the great pleasure of chairing the board of the uh, Migration Museum project. And before I hand over to our chair uh, this evening, Robert uh, Winder, uh, to, chair, uh, to chair this evening's uh, lecture, just let me set the stage. We're absolutely delighted uh, that we have Professor uh, Robert Toombs with us uh, this evening. I just wanted to say a very, very few words um, about the Migration Museum project. At the moment, we are a project. Uh, we put on uh, events like these. We put on other seminars. Uh, we put on uh, lectures and we have a tremendous education programme. And through that programme, we've reached uh, thousands of, uh, of children uh, in, in our schools uh, with the work uh, that we've done. But we have much grander ambitions. What we would like to do is to establish a physical museum, a national museum of migration, and we're currently looking uh, at one possible site at the moment uh, here in London. We believe that this is a story that needs to be told, and it's not just a recent story. It's a very long story. It's a whole history of migration to and from the UK. Um, uh, as you've said, uh, Robert, we have two Roberts this evening. As you've said, Robert, Robert Toombs, uh, when you look at the, uh, the history um, of, uh, of this country, uh, it's not just about thatched cottages and cream teas. Uh, it's about migration as well. And we want um, to tell that story. At times, it's a, an uplifting and wonderful story. At times, it's difficult. And everybody has part of that story to tell. It's a museum that we want to see that it's for everybody that will be popular and engaging. Um, as Robert, Robert Winder um, uh, says, we've all come from somewhere else. The only difference between us is how long ago um, that was. So that's what we want to do, something that's popular and engaging, a space to talk about migration, uh, and something that can actually really speak to this important thing that's in our national consciousness. We would like your help and support. If you want to support us, there are all sorts of forms on your seats. Um, tweet about us, uh, speak about us to your friends and colleagues. If you know of any spare millionaires or billionaires in your wide circle of acquaintance, tell them about us. If you can give us any money, we unashamedly have to ask for money. If you can give us any money, however small, uh, please do. That would be absolutely uh, tremendous. It only remains for me to thank LSE once again um, for hosting um, this second lecture. We are very, very grateful to them. To thank you uh, for coming along um, in such numbers. Um, and I'm now going to hand over to, to Robert Winder. Robert is a fellow uh, trustee of the project. He's been with us right from the start, and he really, in, in part, has been part of our inspiration. Um, Robert, uh, you will know, um, is the former literary editor of The Independent. He's also an author, he's written numerous books, uh, but the book which has been our inspiration is the book uh, Bloody Foreigners. Robert. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh. Yes. 
some very exciting new technology here, which I can't work. <laughs> Let's just keep it going right up. Uh, Barbara, thank you very, very much, and um, thanks to all of you for coming, and thank you to the LSE for having us. In my uh, capacity as cabin crew, I can just start by asking you please to turn up your mobile phones to the loudest possible volume, <laughs> eat crisps as noisily as you like, chat among yourselves, whistle a happy tune. It makes it much more enjoyable for the rest of us. Uh, I should also point out the emergency exits in the unlikely event of a landing on water. They're quite easy to find. They're also the entrances They're where we came in. And there are various fire assembly points uh, out the back too. Now, in terms of phones, you don't have to turn them off. In fact, they quite like you to keep them just on silence so you can tweet about what a marvellous theatre this is, what an absorbing and instructive lecture you're listening to, and so forth. So do feel free to go ahead and do that. I should add that uh, the Robert Toombs's book on England and English history is available right outside afterwards, and he'd be delighted to sign any copies that you want to take to him. It gives me great pleasure to introduce him tonight. Um, I mean, he's a very distinguished professor of French history from St. John's College, Cambridge. Um, and he's married to a French woman, too, so this has been a painful few days, the events in Paris. He's written extensively about the Paris Commune and various other aspects of 19th century French riotous behaviour, but uh, that doesn't diminish the shock of this week. So we're especially delighted that he's made himself free to come here tonight and talk to us not about France, but about England, because his most recent book, tremendous, magnificent book uh, on England and its history, um, is an enormous, engaging, illuminating run through the whole of English history. Um, it has all the virtues and advantages, really, I suppose, of being written by someone who's not a specialist. There's never a hint that he's ploughing his own specialised field and putting up fences to protect it. It's bold and sweeping and panoramic and full of glancing insights into all kinds of things. At the end, he describes England as a, as a rambling country house with ancient foundations and a lot of modern extensions. And he explores all of them with a very bright torch. It's an absolute treat to read. It was very well received, quite rightly. People called it uh, expert and heroic and monumental and uh, wonderful. Um, all words I don't think he minded hearing too much. Actually, one of your Dominic Sandbrook, well, you've called it pithy, which is quite an unusual, interesting term for a book that's more than a thousand pages long. Um, but it was quite appropriate, too, because while it is, of course, colossal, it's also very agile and fast-moving and interesting. And um, I don't want to... Um, interrupt anything he's going to go on to say other than to introduce him tonight and ask you to give a warm welcome to Robert Timms. I think one critic said it was heavy. <laughs> um, thank you for asking me to speak this evening and thank you all for being here. Uh, I regard it as a very great honour to be asked to give this second lecture uh, in the service, in a sense, of a project which um, is an admirable one. Uh, it's an honour, uh, and it's an honour that I was very tempted to decline. The movement and mixing of 
peoples has suddenly become one of the most troubling moral and political issues of the moment. Uh, but I'm a historian. Uh, I'm not a political scientist, not a moralist, not an economist, not a philosopher. And history, unlike these other disciplines, does not set out to define principles or design policies or prescribe action. Rather, it talks about things that have already happened and often happened a long time ago. Yet the fact that we're all here shows that um, we all agree that this is something that we ought to remember. We, we ought to remember migration as a crucial and epic part of our history, uh, remember and empathize, remember and celebrate, and even sometimes remember and regret. Uh, the book that you, you've been too kind in mentioning uh, used a phrase that, that Barbara referred to and which was taken up by some reviewers. I said that our present multi-ethnicity was as much part of our heritage as thatch cottages and cream teas. What I meant by that is that it's not something that suddenly happened to us out of the blue, as might be the case with some Scandinavian or Eastern European countries who suddenly find themselves with unusual, strange people in their midst, something that they're not used to and, 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 and surprised by, if not horrified by. For us, it grows out of the whole of our history, the fundamental facts of our history as an island nation, a global trading nation, once the center of an empire, the origin of the first world language, sometimes a safe refuge for those in need, and even before the Romans came, a country that was part of a European network. So all these reasons throughout our history, and indeed before our history begins to be recorded, means that we've been a country of many immigrants and emigrants. This is part of our identity. It makes us what we are. I had a second reason to hesitate about coming, and that is because I wasn't sure how to say anything fresh about this subject. Uh, it's a familiar story, and certainly familiar to very mem many members of this audience, uh, and it's been told very grippingly by our chairman, Robert Winder, uh, and I thought there's not much point in my trying to tell the story again. So what I'm going to try to do is to bring out another dimension, not simply to give an overview of migration in our history, but to try to identify what was different, special, even perhaps unique in the English and British experience of migration and see what particular shapes it's molded us into. And then in the final part of this lecture, I'll briefly discuss nations, identities, democracy, cohesion and diversity and try to reflect on the connections between them. Of course, the human species began as a migratory one. When the last great ice age finally receded, even before the physical link with the continent was washed away some 6,000 years ago, this country was already inhabited, so archaeologists tell us, by people who are genetically the ancestors of most who live here today. I'm not one of those, by the way. That tiny population, only a few thousand hunter-gatherers during the first few millennia, grew when they began burning and cutting down the forests. Um, and um, as early as the Iron Age, 700, about 750 BC, 
Every inch of land belonged to somebody or was expressly set aside for communal purposes. Some field boundaries are among the world's oldest constructions still in use. It's this settlement that creates a distinction between the immobile and the mobile, and so I suppose that's when the story of migration takes on some meaning. The population grew to as many as two million. An early Italian visitor described the natives of the coastal regions as civilized and especially friendly to strangers due to their frequent commercial contacts. As Dr. Johnson later observed, people are rarely so innocently employed as in making money. Their history was transformed by Roman conquest beginning in AD 43, the biggest invasion ever of these islands, by about 40,000 men with a detachment of elephants. The island was transformed again by huge movements of migrants that took place all over Europe for nearly a thousand years from the 3rd to the 12th century what Germans call the Völkerwanderung, the wandering of peoples. Among the causes were climatic fluctuations and conflicts as far away as the Chinese Empire, which caused peoples to move west. The sea surrounding the island, far from being a barrier, was a highway. It facilitated the arrival of many small groups, yet nevertheless it made large-scale invasions difficult and hazardous and rapid mass colonization impossible. From the 3rd century onwards, those the Romans called Saxons were harrying both sides of the North Sea, taking loot and slaves, and drowning or crucifying a tenth of their captives as a sacrifice to their gods. It's often hard, so archaeologists say, to decide whether as a whole these were peaceful migrations or violent migrations, though I expect people then knew the difference. But even the major conquerors, Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans, were relatively small groups of warriors who took possession of the country and its peoples as overlords, but did not exterminate or expel them. Hence the genetic continuity from ancient times. This is England's first peculiarity, I would suggest. Many of our Western European neighbours were taken over by a single warrior people, and formed into large kingdoms, the Franks in what's now France and Western Germany, the Goths in Italy, the Visigoths in Spain. These were quickly Romanized, learning Latin dialects and adopting Christianity. But in our offshore island, on the edges of the civilized world, things were different. It was too isolated, too difficult to get to, to be taken over wholesale, and so it became a fragmented mixture of Celtic, Roman, and Germanic. Over the 5th century, Saxons colonized the southeastern and central parts of the island, in all perhaps 100,000 or 200,000 people, uh, 10 or 20% of the existing population, so in our terms equal to about 6 to 12 million people. Trade collapsed, coinage disappeared, the Saxons eradicated Roman law and culture, including Christianity, and imposed new beliefs, customs, and above all a new language. The country was divided up between several warring kingdoms. Two things from outside changed this. Religion from Rome and invasion from Scandinavia. A mission of 40 monks led by Augustine arrived from Rome in 596 and was amazingly successful. 
He created a single church, cutting across the boundaries of the various kingdoms. And this story of conversion was, giving his, was given historical shape by a monk from the great Northumbrian monastery of Jarrow, Bede, whose ecclesiastical history of the English people, which he finished in 731, largely invented and certainly propagated the idea that there was a single English people. If English identity began as a religious idea, it began to take political form a hundred years after Bede in response to another very forceful wave of migrants, the Vikings. They conquered two of the four major kingdoms, Northumbria and East Anglia, and partitioned a third, Mercia. Wessex, the kingdom of the West Saxons, remained under King Alfred the Great, the only intact Christian power, and the embryonic English kingdom. The Scandinavian influx into the British Isles over this period was probably greater than any population movement before or since. The struggle between Saxons and Danes continued long after Alfred's death. After the victory of Brunnenberg in 937, Athelstan was confirmed as the first King of the English. That was his title. There still wasn't a name for the place that the English lived in, but uh, a, few, uh, a few decades later, the country, as well as the people, had acquired a name, uh, Englelond. So Englelond had been created by a migrant people in a struggle with other migrant peoples. Uh, its independence didn't last long. Uh, the late 10th and 11th centuries, arguably the worst crisis in England's history, would see at least five attempts to conquer it. Two of them succeeded, first by the Danes, under Canute, and then by the Normans, under William the Conqueror. William's invading army in 1066 was probably only around 8,000 warriors. Uh, these, these were adventurers drawn from uh, across Western Europe, tempted by the prospects of land, treasure, and wealthy English brides. Uh, this, too, was an armed migration, part of what's been called an aristocratic diaspora, in which ambitious warriors set off to conquer land round the periphery of Europe. The Normans annihilated England's ruling class, physically and genetically. After 1066, the indigenous English, the natives as they were generally known, would come to be considered a people of peasants using a crude vernacular, the butt of mockery. To sum up so far, England had a pretty disastrous first few centuries. Being wide open to seaborne migrants, it went through cultural, religious, political, and economic upheavals. But out of this melting pot came, very surprisingly, a strong and united kingdom. This, I would say, is our, is our second peculiarity. It was certainly very peculiar within the circumstances of Western Europe at that time. It happened because in order to survive the Anglo-Saxons had been forced to band together and create a powerful kingdom able to defend itself and which required its people to cooperate. They had to in making it work. Some historians consider this the world's first true nation, a political community with a shared identity, some representative institutions and a shared culture. It turned out to be a prototype. One American historian puts it like this, the birth of England was not the birth of a nation, it was the birth of nations. And this prototype nation survived conquest, 
Somehow it had sufficient attractive power to persuade descendants of Danish and Norman invaders that they were and wished to be English. That identity was in part based on a powerful sense of England as a place whose boundaries were mostly fixed from the 19th century onwards, more than a thousand years before those of most European countries. It also had distinctive cultural foundations, above all a language, a written language. Uh, Three or four generations after Hastings, the Saxons and Normans were becoming hard to tell apart. They spoke English, described themselves generally as English, shared certain social activities. They were famous for drinking and expressing pride in their English ancestry, however bogus. England's kings claimed descent from King Arthur. Uh, Its people claimed freedoms they believed had been brought from Germany by the Saxons. An important myth of the the inheritance of freeborn Englishmen that remained uh, an inspiration to popular political demands until well into modern times. Uh, This sounds like a, a patriotic success story, And in a way it is. The slow, though painfully slow, growth of unity from diversity, the passage from conquest to revive nationhood. But it was not easy and it was not inevitable. The Norman conquest ended the wandering of the peoples as far as England was concerned. And the next major round of population movement was centuries later. I'm leaving out lots of individual movement of traders, churchmen and nobles which were typical of medieval Europe because, as I said, I'm going to try to pick out the things that are unusual and special to England. The new period of movement was caused by two centuries of religious conflict from the 1500s to the 1700s. Again, one of the worst crises in European history. Refugees, both individuals and groups, went back and forth across the Channel in the North Sea. One of the most important in retrospect was William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English and thus, says one specialist, made England's greatest cultural contribution to the world for 500 years. Perhaps that's an understatement. If one thinks of Tyndale as being one of the most important originators of what's now become a world language, though not all of it he would have recognized, I suppose, but quite a lot of it he would. Tyndale, as you may know, sought asylum in Europe, uh, but he was found and killed. However, again, as I've set out in this lecture to identify what what was different, I'm not going to say very much about religious refugees, not even about the most famous in our history, the French Protestants, or Huguenots. I know that there are people in this audience who know a very great deal about them, uh, uh, so it's perhaps wise that I'm not going to say too much about them. Uh, Some 200,000 refugees fled persecution by Louis XIV in the 1680s, and of these, about 50,000 came to Britain. Given the then size of the population, it would be the equivalent of about 400,000 today. Others went to Prussia and Holland. So England's experience was not unique, uh, and the Huguenots here had a similar experience and made a similar economic and cultural contribution to those who went to Prussia. However, um, if I'm not going to say much about them, I do think it's worth pointing out that the Huguenots pioneered what we might think of as modern multiculturalism. They established themselves as a community, with their own neighbourhoods, their own networks, their own institutions, especially churches, some of which still exist over three centuries later. Uh, 
Not all migrant communities did or today do this. Some are much more willing to assimilate, as indeed many Huguenots did. But an enduring sense of community is not clearly necessarily a bar to integration. Though we should remember that the conditions the Huguenots were facing were very favorable to get them accepted. They were Protestant victims and opponents of Britain's great enemy, Louis XIV. Yet even so, there was working-class hostility against them, as there was soon to be against other refugees, the poor Palatines, fleeing from Louis XIV's invasion of Germany in 1709. The main difference seems to have been that the Huguenots were generally skilled and prosperous. For example, they helped to found the first friendly societies and also the Bank of England. The Palatines were largely poor, unskilled laborers who found life in Britain much harsher and less welcoming. Needless to say, there are parallels today. That England had become a land of asylum for a diverse range of refugees and that it remained so for more than two centuries was, I think, a third special characteristic of our history and so it's something I do want to underline. It came about because of England's relative freedom and political stability after the glorious revolution of 1688 and it was possible because its growing power internationally meant that it could not be intimidated by protests from other countries that Britain was sheltering their political dissidents. So, in fact, receiving refugees became, in the 18th and 19th centuries, a source of intense patriotic pride. Not necessarily an admirable sentiment, but one that, in this case, did some good. After every revolution and counter-revolution in Europe, and there have been at least six periods of upheaval over the last two centuries, there was an influx of refugees from both ends of the political spectrum, some of whom stayed for years or permanently, some of whom liked England, many of whom didn't. They included escaped American slaves, several generations of European political activists, and Jews fleeing persecution in Spain and later Russia. Some, like the Corsican Pasquale Paoli, the Hungarian Laios Kossuth, and the Italians Giuseppe Mazzini and Giuseppe Garibaldi, became literally English national heroes, attracting huge crowds and great admiration. Dr. Karl Marx, though never a public hero on this scale, was even more important. This periodic influx of political refugees helped to spread the ideas and cultures of Europe in both directions. And some refugees created in the 18th and 19th centuries, as of course they do today, a network of international political organizations, some admirable, some, some not. But however we might judge them, how many epic stories lie hidden behind this very bare summary? All these refugees helped to create a flattering image of a self-confident British freedom defying tyranny. It culminated, of course, in Britain's finest hour during the Second World War as the haven of European liberty, perhaps our proudest historical memory. The most regular asylum seekers were the French, culminating with General de Gaulle and his followers in 1940. But the largest number ever... 60 to 80,000 of them came in the 1790s during the French Revolution, and about half of them were, were members of the Catholic clergy, including 30 bishops. The rest were a diverse collection ranging from princes to peasants. 
On the whole, they seem to have been pretty well received. A committee collected a large amount of money for them. The government lent Winchester Castle to be a temporary monastery and provided the monks with rations of a pound of meat and four pints of beer a day. Um, Many exiles had to earn a living. Uh, One countess set up a cafe in London serving ice cream. A former Benedictine monk used his library to start a bookshop. Several schools were founded, including the Jesuit school at Stonyhurst, in existence. Some people who came as refugees stayed as migrants. Auguste Charles Pugin, who arrived in 1792, produced engravings of British scenes for the celebrated publisher Ackerman. Marc Brunel, a naval engineer who arrived in 1799, designed advanced machinery for the Royal Navy. Both married Englishmen and their sons created some of our greatest 19th century monuments, including a large part of the Houses of Parliament and key elements of our transport system. But most asylum seekers returned to France after the end of the revolutionary terror. Among them were France's next three kings and several future prime ministers. Exiles carried on coming, and later celebrity French exiles included the writers Victor Hugo, Paul Verlaine, Arthur Rimbaud, and Émile Zola, The influence on both France and Britain of this contact between former enemies must have been profound. Perhaps I might mention that as a small child, I went to a school run by an order of French nuns expelled during the secularization battles of the early 1900s, a small history that I think has never really been told. British governments in the 19th century had no legal powers to forbid the arrival of refugees, and no power to expel them. The electorate was very keen that they should not have such powers. And this meant that Britain was Europe's safest refuge. This sometimes caused serious friction with other governments, most famously when Italian nationalists nearly managed in 1858 to assassinate the French emperor, Napoleon III, with bombs made in Birmingham. Um, They were acquitted by a London jury, who was told by the Defence Council to stand up for liberty even though 600,000 French bayonets glitter in your sight. Uh, and so they found them not guilty, though they were clearly guilty. Uh, and, and Lord Palmerston thought this was a terrible shame and uh, it, made Britain, or it made the British government, at least, extremely unpopular. Um, but it was very popular, as I say. It was very, um, uh, public opinion was very much in favour of protecting refugees. When the 1871 Paris Commune was bloodily crushed in May 1871, thousands of revolutionaries, despite French government protests, found shelter in England, including some involved in what we would today probably consider terrorist acts. But the government decided that whatever they had done outside Britain, they were political exiles and hence untouchable. One became a successful fashion designer, one worked for the royal family, one torched taught French at Eton. Uh, One set up a cafe in Greek Street, the Maison Française, which is still going strong, which I recommend. The last major group of 19th century refugees were Jews from the Russian Empire, fleeing a series of violent pogroms from the 1880s to the 1900s from everywhere across the Western Russian Empire from, from Poland to Odessa. As we all know, many gathered in the East End and in a wonderfully symbolic piece of history took over the Huguenot Church in Spitalfields which became a synagogue and is now in turn a mosque. So a living migration museum. 
But the British and other governments became increasingly restrictive in their immigration policies due to fears of a fifth column of various sorts, to fashionable theories about race and degeneration, and also because of the increasing provision of welfare. When governments did little or nothing to help poor migrants, they could be regarded as a mere resource of muscle power who sank or swam on their own or relied on charity. But when governments started providing welfare, they also started taking more notice of who arrived and what their rights were. There was no longer anywhere in the 20th century an open door. In our case, it was the 1905 Aliens Act that partly closed it. Nevertheless, Britain continued to take refugees, something that we're proud of, though in relatively small numbers compared with previous centuries. About 40,000 Austrian and German Jews came to Britain to escape Nazi persecution in the the 30s, and about 10,000 children in the famous Kindertransporter. Some people were very hospitable. Harold Macmillan MP, later Prime Minister, sheltered 40 refugees in his own home. Uh, The Callaghan and Thatcher families also gave shelters. Overall, Britain had, in the words of a leading historian, a, quote, relatively generous record, though not an outstanding one. Similarly with wartime Poles, I had half a dozen of their children in my class at school, and later East African Asians, originally recruited by British colonial authorities and facing severe discrimination after independence. Britain took some tens of thousands of refugees, most of whom came to stay. But although the 19th and 20th centuries were strongly marked by these movements of refugees, they were vastly outnumbered by economic migration. Indeed, the 18th and 19th centuries, I think, were the most important period for global migration so far in history. We could think of it as a second wandering of the peoples, but this time associated with rapid population growth, economic globalization, and imperialism. This is Britain's fourth special characteristic. Being the first industrial nation, it attracted workers and entrepreneurs from the continent, including the Rothschilds, Friedrich Engels, Siemens, and others commemorated in your recent exhibition on the Germans in Britain. And it also exported entrepreneurs and skilled workers to set up factories, with many remarkable successes and some characteristic failures. The pioneering French ironmaster, François de Vandel, sent his English foreman back in 1824 to recruit more men, but found he couldn't manage his English workers on his own. He wrote in fluent Franglais, Your absence me nuit beaucoup, causes me great problems. Je paye your workmans, and they do not work. The carpenter is an ivrogne, a drunkard. English workers didn't have the best of reputations. Uh, The buccaneering railway entrepreneur Thomas Brassey recruited 5,000 hard-bitten British navvies as the core of a workforce to build railways in France, though French nationalists cheered when one of their viaducts collapsed and said it was disgusting that French workers should be employed by English companies. And uh, during the 1848 revolution, Uh, many English workers were chased out by patriotic crowds and had to take refuge on channel ferries. (laughs) Um, Vastly greater numbers of people migrated from Europe to other continents, and there were also very large movements of Asian peoples within the British Empire. 
As concerns the British Isles, all movements of refugees or economic immigrants were dwarfed by internal movements, millions from Ireland to Great Britain, and from rural areas to industrial areas, and also, of course, by mass emigration to other continents. The British have been among the greatest economic migrants in history. There was a mixture of push and pull factors. Governments considered distant colonies as good places to get rid of undesirables. Starting quite early, Cromwell's Republic sent royalists and, quote, loose wenches for slave labor in Jamaica. Hundreds of Jacobite rebels were dispatched to America, as on average were about 12 criminals a week. Um, And, of course, the same thing later happened in Australia. The pull factor, as always, was the hope of a better life which grew in the 18th and 19th centuries as our population more than tripled in 150 years. Here, this is a poem now, here we have toil and little to reward it, but there shall plenty smile upon our pain, and ours shall be the mountain and the forest and boundless prairies ripe with golden grain. A poem called The Emigrants, 1856, by Charles Mackay. Impelled by these visions, some 50 million migrants left Europe between 1815 and 1930, and more than a third of these were from the United Kingdom, 11 million from Great Britain, and 7 million from Ireland. It's an amazing average of over 150,000 a year, year in, year out, for more than a century. The typical migrant was young, male, unmarried, and semi-skilled. To get a sense of the scale of this emigration, all the British soldiers slaughtered during the First World War were no more than those normally emigrating in peacetime. Migrants went to Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, but most went to the United States. If Westerns were accurate, cowboys would have Scottish and Irish accents. Enthusiastic colonialists welcomed the global propagation of the race, creating great British cities such as New York, Boston, Sydney, Auckland and Toronto. Today, of course, we're aware of the devastation that resulted. Some even describe it as genocide. Wherever outsiders arrived, indigenous populations collapsed. Diseases to which they had no immunity swept through them. In North America, the native population fell from perhaps 10 million to less than 500,000. In New Zealand, from around 100,000 to 40,000. In parts of South America, the Caribbean, Southern Africa and Australia, peoples became extinct culturally and even physically. Perhaps the most notorious case today is Australia, where the Aboriginal population fell from perhaps 750,000 to 60,000 during the 19th century. This is usually blamed on Europeans, who did indeed wreak havoc. But the deadliest killer, which probably wiped out around half the population in a few decades, was smallpox brought by Asian fishermen in the late 18th century, which reminds us that movement of peoples had now become global. European migrants used sustained violence to expand their settlements and defend their new property. Scientists and politicians commonly regarded the extinction of savages as progress, as President Theodore Roosevelt saw it, quote, the most ultimately righteous of all wars is a war with savages. The fierce settler who drives the savage from the land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him. After a few generations, the best that most survivors could hope for was to work as laborers for the new masters or eke out an impoverished, 
demoralized and despised existence in reservations and shanty towns on the margins of American, Australian and African settler society, a position that many of their descendants still occupy. The First World War and interwar economic depression ended this period of mass economic migration. After the Second World War, relatively small-scale migration into Britain, mostly from the Commonwealth, gave rise to overtly racist opposition, the period of powerlism, which anti-discrimination legislation and education largely stifled. Yet until the 1980s, more people left Britain than arrived, and commentators worried about a brain drain. In recent years, another epoch-making wandering of the peoples may have begun, of which the causes, as in the past, are familiar, fleeing from violence, fleeing from climate change, as the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings were possibly doing, and simply seeking economic betterment, like the Normans and our Victorian predecessors. Since the 1990s, some 50 million people have migrated globally, of which the single biggest element has been from Latin America to North America. Britain has been caught up in the movement, as in previous times, with immigration of unprecedented scale now taking place, causing the sharpest increase in population in our history. Let me sum up my chronological summary of the special characteristics of our migration history. The origins of England were mass migration. Its idea of freedom was entwined with the myth of Saxon liberty brought from the German forests. Its pride in itself as a free and independent nation included giving asylum to all comers. Its economic and imperial expansion meant unprecedented emigration, which, among other things, helped to make English the world language and created what some call a global Anglosphere. In a nutshell, people who came to England and people who left England are not outside our national history, they are an integral part of it, because both immigration and emigration have been crucial in England's creation, development and identity. We shouldn't tell ourselves too many sentimental stories about this, as sometimes when people say that we have a proud history of welcoming immigrants. Well, yes and no. Sometimes welcoming, often rejecting, usually a mixture of both. Movements of people, especially in large numbers, are traumatic and a source of friction. Feelings can quickly change from positive to negative. In short, migration has always been a challenge. It's wise, I think, to recognise this. History doesn't tell us how we should feel or what we should do. It can help us to understand what's happening. Many people think that the age of globalization means that frontiers will come down and nations become obsolete. The other day I noticed a slogan newly sprayed onto a hoarding in the centre of Cambridge, the anarchist symbol with the words, no borders, no nations. I thought, beware what you wish for. It's a bitter irony to consider refugees as a weapon against the system when their sufferings are due precisely to the collapse of their own nations. In any case, the obsolescence of nations doesn't seem to be the general story, let alone what most people want. On the contrary, people are not embracing the global and the borderless, but the local and national, as we see in Scotland or Catalonia. Political communities they feel they can identify with and trust, and which they feel can better protect their sense of identity, their security and their prosperity. This seems not to be a contradiction of globalization, but rather a consequence of it. 
So I don't believe that the age of the nation has ended. I don't see any examples of successful democracies functioning except in nation-states, but too many examples of violence and oppression when nations implode. An essential basis of democracy is a feeling of solidarity and shared identity. This is what a leading theorist of the nation, Benedict Anderson, famously called imagined community, a community that even though it's too big to experience physically, we imagine ourselves as belonging to. What creates an imagined community is a shared culture based on a common language. And this, as another classic theorist of the nation, Ernest Gellner, has argued, uh, a common language is required in order to function as a modern society. More recent social scientists and social psychologists, such as Robert Putnam, Francis Fukuyama, Jonathan Haidt, and Steven Pinker, all emphasize the importance of community, sympathy, solidarity, and trust as the indispensable foundations of cooperative, honest, non-violent, and equal societies. A nation needs to be more than just an economic association, more than just an enormous heath row of people passing through. This brings me back to migration. Is the existence of a nation as an imagined community threatened by mass immigration of different cultures, different social and political traditions, different loyalties? In extreme circumstances, certainly. Think of Rome and Britain, or Anglo-Saxon England, or Lebanon or Tibet today. But these examples are very extreme ones, in which huge movement of peoples is aggravated by violence and even by conquest. In more normal circumstances, a democratic nation-state is a very tough and resilient creature because it involves its people in cultural, social and political life and so can count on their commitment and loyalty. Never complete, I'm not talking about some utopia, but sufficient to live together. A nation is also flexible. It can and does change, incorporating new people, new ideas, new cultural practices. Adding new elements to a nation does not destroy the old. Forgive a hackneyed example, but we can like both chicken tikka masala and roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. This isn't new. The English have always been among the world's most enthusiastic importers of novelty. Perhaps this too is one of our characteristics as an offshore island far from the centres of civilization. The oldest private letter surviving in English, a thousand years old, is by a man telling off his younger brother Edward for adopting a trendy Danish hairstyle. <laughs> Short at the back and with a fringe, in case you're interested. And certainly there have always been critics of foreign ways. Yet like young Edward, we carried on copying. Medieval England took art, architecture, fashion and literature from France and Italy. Geoffrey Chaucer, who revived English literature, was deeply influenced by, and indeed plagiarised, Boccaccio. Shakespeare was the greatest ever inventor of new words. 17th and 18th century ladies and gentlemen copied French manners. Italian and German music nearly wiped out the native product. Our romantic artists copied the Germans. Our modernists copied the French. Sometimes this was pretty slavish. George Orwell criticised those intellectuals who, he said, took their cookery from Paris and their opinions from Moscow. But this was because he deplored their modish lack of patriotism and weakness for totalitarianism. I feel proud that during the Blitz, one refugee in London recorded with amazement that, I quote, the Germans kill them with bombs every night. 
and the next morning one hears Schubert in German on the BBC. The odd fact is we're a traditional people who like novelty. I remember my horror as a seven-year-old having to do folk dancing when I really fancied rock and roll. A nation is not based on a single closed monolithic identity or an exclusive culture. This is what nationalists think and where they're wrong. In fact, it's based on a multitude of interwoven identities such as locality, education, work and sport. Norman Tebbit notoriously proposed a cricket test of identity. Everyone should support the England team. This seems to me to miss the crucial point. Far more important than supporting a particular team is having a shared love of cricket. There is a national identity that is not self-conscious, not about flag-waving, not simply about sharing in the, in the interwoven experiences of... Sorry, but simply about sharing in the interwoven experiences of living in a place and participating in a community. Uh, we had a party in my street to celebrate the Queen's Diamond Jubilee was it three years ago. Uh, at our table was an Englishman, me, two Germans, an Irish woman, two Indians, and a French woman, my wife. And the man who made a moving speech about the importance of community was the Muslim owner of the local supermarket. He was the obvious man to speak for us all, and he did. This sort of thing just happens if we let it, irrespective of what governments do. The main role of the state, it seems to me, is to prevent barriers being built or being maintained, so allowing shared identities to be created naturally. Well, that's a bit of a cliché. It's easy to say, not always easy to do, as we can see if we look across the channel, where well-meaning policies have had disastrous unintended consequences. French urban policy since the 1950s, creating new satellite residential suburbs around the great cities, where zoning hampers job creation, have generated alienated ghettos, the now infamous banlieue. Republican secularist measures against public wearing of religious symbols aimed at breaking down cultural and gender barriers and supported by many progressive people, including many Muslim women, have, have generated bitter conflict. In this country, in contrast, we followed a permissive, pluralist, even multicultural policy trusting in our own society to erode barriers and create links between different communities. But this has been famously criticised by Trevor Phillips, one of the distinguished friends of the Migration Museum projects, as, quote, sleepwalking to segregation, maintaining some communities in cultural and physical isolation outside our imagined community. In some places, most notoriously in Bradford, tensions between generations between men and women, and with a host society seen as simultaneously decadent, immoral and tempting, has given rise to some appallingly misogynistic criminality and even violent rejection by a radicalised minority. Religious extremism offers them an escape from failure, frustration, guilt and complexity. It provides a glamorous identity and even a way of breaking the traditionalist trammels of family and community. But outside these subcultures, the general picture is very different. It shows increasing ethnic and racial mixing in social and family relations, just what makes extremism, extremists so angry and which they try to prevent. Surely the attack on the Bataclan rock concert in Paris last week was not random but targeted at precisely the social mixing 
of a multi-ethnic young generation seen by extremists as corrupt and degenerate. Education is a crucial factor. For example, young people of Indian and Pakistani origin with degrees in England are marrying other graduates of different ethnic backgrounds and moving into the commuter suburbs. Another example, among those officially designated Caribbean, between a half and a third have white partners, especially in the younger age groups. Consequently, there are now twice as many children of Caribbean and white parents in England as of two Caribbean parents. Similar trends are emerging among newer immigrant groups. A considerable minority of children of Polish mothers have African or Asian fathers. Consequently, Britain already has about the same proportion of mixed-race children as the United States, despite the latter's four centuries of multi-ethnic history. Moreover, surveys indicate that adults of mixed parentage tend to see themselves not as part of a minority community, or even as British, but as English, what The Economist magazine has called the identity of the comfortably assimilated. I don't believe migration, even economic migration, should be assessed only by economic criteria. It's distasteful when people's lives are valued primarily in cash terms. In any case, the purely economic effect of migration, except for migrants themselves, is small. In Britain today, increasing the population increases the size of the economy, but not per capita wealth. More important and long-lasting are the other things that migrants bring. Cultural innovation, diversity, hybridity, variety, novelty. In Cambridge, I can have a shisha delivered to my door. Moreover, the best pub with 16 local beers on draft is run by an immigrant who is an enthusiast for the English pint. Not only do newcomers bring new things with them, like shishas, they also rediscover old things about ourselves that we've forgotten or neglected. A country shut in on itself is unlikely to be a fun place to live. I remember the 1950s, safe, law-abiding, but not exciting. Cultural inbreeding is like physical inbreeding. It causes degenerative disorders. Cohesion is good, but one can have too much of a good thing. In really cohesive societies, you have stifling conformity, arranged marriages, and burning of witches. Or, as in a European country, I shall not name, um, the police being informed if you don't mow your lawn. England has not had that kind of cohesion probably since the Black Death, and certainly not since the Industrial Revolution. Our challenge today is to be sufficiently open to reap the benefits of diversity without allowing such a degree of diversity that it erodes solidarity within our imagined community. And let us be frank, that is a danger. We can surely, imagine, um, we can surely manage if, in the words of Robert Coles in his excellent book Identity of England, the nation's propensity for seeing itself as diverse is not allowed to outstrip its propensity for seeing itself as united. We have to decide, and preferably agree, how to ensure this. In opening itself to newcomers, dare I say that England has so far not done too badly by most standards. Our history has been helpful. For one thing, history hasn't created a standard model of Englishness or Britishness, there is no agreed list of characteristics or ideas you have to sign up to. 
We haven't for more than three centuries had a revolution that has forced us to draw up a constitution defining our national mission statement. England just is, and what it is, is us. All its people, no more, no less, in all our variety of beliefs, interests and habits. The Scottish philosopher David Hume said 260 years ago that the English of any people in the universe have the least of a national character. If he's right, that's another of those special characteristics I'm trying to identify. Hume ascribed this to our liberty and independency, which encourage variety, not uniformity. So if England is a club, it's one anybody can join, and which hasn't many rules. William Waldgrave, now provost of Eton, the scion of a genuinely ancient English family, has written that his ideal of Englishness was the Oxford intellectual Isaiah Berlin, a Latvian, German, Jewish, Italian mixture of all the cultures of Europe. When back in the 1960s, General de Gaulle rejected Britain's application to join the European Common Market, he did so because, he said, England is an island, seagoing, bound up by its trade, its markets, its food supplies, with the most varied and often the most distant countries. He meant this as a criticism. I've always regarded it as a a compliment. I'm sure it's something that the Migration Museum will celebrate, and I wish it well. Thank you very much. We do have, um, that was marvellous, we do have time for um, some questions and I think there's a roving microphone or two, um, so do stick your hands up when you have uh, something you'd like to ask. One thing I forgot to mention earlier that I should mention is that this event is being recorded, um, so the surveillance operation is in full swing. It actually only means that, as Flanders and Swan used to say, where you're sitting now is where you'll be sitting on the podcast Um, But so, while you think of a question to ask, can I just invite, Robert, would you like just perhaps to amplify a little bit? You touched on um, the comparison between the French and the British approach to uh, immigration and the multicultural approach that we have as opposed to the slightly more separate and secular um, approach of France. Given the events that we've seen in the last week, Um, How do you see that continuing? Can France maintain that same style? Um, I I don't feel this is a time I want to criticise the French, which I have done in the past. Uh, I don't know that the present events, uh, how much they're connected with France's internal problems. It may be that they were imported from the outside. But as as many of you will know, um, France has a strong secularist tradition um, which largely comes from the 19th century, though it can be traced back to the, to the revolution, in which the state has to assert its, its non-religious character. Uh, and this was developed really in the struggle against the Catholic Church um, and became law in the early 1900s. Um, but it's been extended to, 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 in a sense, to all religions, and of course particularly to Islam. Now, People, there are people in France, indeed many people in France, who regard this as an essential principle of, of the modern state. 
um, that the state must at all costs refuse to enter the arena of religion. It must not support or indeed recognize religious identity as having any political or social meaning. Religion should be a matter of, for private life and for, and for the domestic um, arena. And hence, um, you, you should not identify yourself publicly as belonging to any religion. Of course, the problem with this is, what about if people won't accept it as a principle? And, um, uh, and also, of course, the other problem is, is it, that it's not, in fact, really applied um, equally. Um, and I just say, t- to end this answer, if that's enough, um, uh, I remember a, a friend and colleague of mine, a, a now elderly French professor, saying, I would never allow anyone to sit in my lectures wearing hijab. And then he said, but I suppose I have let nuns uh, attend. Um, of course, a hundred years ago, the nuns would have been kicked out as well. But now, of course, nuns would be tolerated and Muslim women would not. Um, at least that's often, that's often been the case. And I think, it's, and I think as you said, how long will it go on? Well, I don't know. But I mean, I think, I think there, are, there are serious problems within France. And I think what is, in a sense, now in balance is whether these latest attacks will tend to push people towards unity and common citizenship or cause further divisions and tend to push communities apart. And to some extent that depends on the political response of French politicians and it depends in particular, I suppose, on how many votes go to the, the Front National and to Madame Marine Le Pen, which we shall find out in the, in the forthcoming local elections. But when things get pulled apart, they also do sometimes get pushed together, don't they? As at the football match at Wembley last night, yes. you suddenly get a strange uh, burst of sympathy and togetherness in other areas. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was wonderful. I saw it and I thought it was very moving. But um, I have to say my wife noticed, uh, and the cameras lingered on him, one of the French players was not singing the Marseillaise. Um, and this has been a problem in France in the past. Members of sports teams will not sing it. Um, and so, you know, there's always the possibility of, of, again, of even gestures intended to create unity, creating or focusing further on disunity. That's partly the nature of modern sport. There was a famous incident many years ago at a World Cup when one of the Irish players uh, mentioned to his colleague next to him about a national anthem. He said, crikey, this one goes on a bit. And his friend said, shush, it's ours. <laughs> um, um, do we have a question from the audience? Yes, we have a at the back there, if we can reach the microphone. Um, if you can try, I just urge you to ask questions rather than give speeches. I've been asked to urge that um, so that we can get more out of Robert tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks for a very interesting talk. Um, I noticed that you did acknowledge at the end the possibility of immigration being some kind of a threat to national identity, at least in principle. It seems as though these days some people argue that It's not that immigration itself is a bad thing, but too much of it, too fast, too many per year. Is that the right way of thinking about it? And if so, how many is too many? (laughs) Well, that's a question none of us can answer. And I think um, it largely depends on how you respond, of course. Uh, People who are are settled, who are integrated, who who, who get jobs, who, who, who mix with society then the, the, num- the numbers then, it becomes less the question. It's, it's how people are received or how they can be received. Um, quite small numbers, if they're, if they're maintained 
in ghettos um, are, are clearly a problem. You might say, well, that's not their fault, and I agree with that. Um, we, can, we might say in, in this place in Belgium that none of us had heard of until a few days ago, which is apparently, in which apparently some, a sort of ghetto has been created of, of, with extremely high levels of, of unemployment. Now, that's because of the laws and the practices that we, that we adopt. Um, so I think, you know, in a sense, I'm, I'm sort of avoiding questions. I don't, know, I don't think there probably is a number. Uh, but the, the answer must be it depends on how, how, how willing and able a society is to accept people and make them, make them part of itself. Has there ever been a case, to your knowledge, of a country or a nation that has been um, spoiled or lost cohesion markedly as a result of too much migration? Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm tempted to say the United States of America. That, that's a ra- perhaps rather a flippant answer. But, uh, of course, because in some ways America has been a great success. Okay, I said earlier that it, this was at the expense of its native population to a large extent. But, of course, America has been in many ways a great success. But whenever we have another shooting, I mean, I, I sort of feel, I'm sure we all do, what, what is it about this country that makes people so suspicious of each other that they feel they have to be armed? You know, we used to have an armed population. In fact, you were required to keep arms. But this was all, this was all done away with in the, in, the early, in the early 20th century. The Americans don't seem to be able to do that. And I think, in a way, this, is, this must be the symptom of society in which people cannot really trust their neighbours. Yeah. Um, gentleman in the centre. Can he be reached Thank you. Uh, you, you made some interesting remarks about, uh, and you're, you're quoting David Hume in terms of uh, there being a lack of English nationalism. To what extent do you think the class divisions within England, as distinct from other parts of the United Kingdom, have, as it were, had a modifying effect on how migration has affected local communities. I'm I'm thinking, in fact, that that, very often it's as much somebody's accent as their their appearance or their clothing that that, that feeds a sense of otherness or similarity. Yes. I think think you're absolutely right. I think Hume actually said the English don't have a national character, by which he meant they're not similar. But, um, of course, the question of English nationalism is a, is, a, is a different one, which I could talk about if you like. But I, I think you're right. I mean, it, um, it's true that class, it seems to me that class in England kind of trumps race. You know, the, the countries in which colour is the essential mark of, of, of class identity here, it's, it's not. Um, and we immediately know that. Uh, so whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But it's certainly, a, it's certainly an unusual, a somewhat unusual thing. English nationalism, okay, if you, is, I, th- I think often has been, um, has been rather downplayed because England was part of a, of a, of a union and, and the centre of an empire, and therefore it wasn't a good idea to go on too much about Engl- England and Englishness when you were part of a much larger unit. Uh, I think, and clearly the, the re-emergence of a more self-conscious Englishness is largely a consequence of the... 
of devolution and the, the potential breakup of the union. Um, I think one, one thing that we, we have to be, be aware of is, is what kind of English identity will emerge and whether it will be one that is narrow, exclusive, xenophobic, um, which, of course, it has, it has, it's often taken that expression, th- things like the English Defence League and so on, or whether it becomes um, perhaps a Scottish nationalism has done, so Scottish nationalists say, one that is sort of at ease with itself and therefore very much at ease with its relations with others. That's what we... Um, if, we, if we're to have an English nationalism, that's the sort of thing it has to be. Um, but I'd rather hope that we don't have too much English nationalism. I almost said a little test would be whether you ever feel slightly embarrassed in seeing people waving Union Jack umbrellas at the last night of the proms. Uh, I admit I, I rather do. Your version of the Tebbit test. Do, do, <laughs> can you envisage such a thing these days as British nationalism? Um, no, not... not. Um, I think the... I think the, well, I, I'm not, well, okay. Um, there's, there's, there, there used to be a sense of British, Britishness, which was particularly an English characteristic, I think. People often talked about England and Britain interchangeably, which Scots and Welsh and Irish didn't do. Um, so I think in, a, in some sense it's a, it's a semantic change. Yeah, there's no such thing um, as an English passport, you uh, yes. And all, but also, I mean, I, you, you, you probably know the important book, uh, Britons, by, uh, gosh, her name slipped my mind now, a very famous historian, Linda Colley, Linda Colley yes. Uh, Britons, in which she says that, that the idea of British identity largely emerged through the conflict with France, through Protestantism, and through the uh, pride in, in, in wealth. In our, I think that kind, of, that kind of thing has certainly gone. There was a question at the uh, the edge. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'm a fairly typical mongrel. My father was one of the 40,000 Austrians that came um, in the 1930s, and my mother came down from the northeast of Scotland. I want to make one quick point before question, which is about the current position on English language training for migrants. I'm the governor of a college in Camden, the Working Men's College, we have 62 nationalities. We have a wonderful celebration day where they all come, cook in their national clothes. Um, our programs for ESOL are being cut, uh, and FE colleges across the country are in desperate trouble, which is where most of the migrants go for their integration training. Anyway, that's my political point. Question very different one, is about internal migration. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. What sort of stress is that setting up? Because uh, most people here, I guess, are Londoners. Londoners have very different attitude to migrants from the rest of the country. But there's a draining also within, arguably within the country, to the south in our case. And I wonder whether what your reflections are on the sort of different way that migration plays out in different parts of the, of the country. We're a small country, but internal migration, yeah. factor? Well, I mean, I, I sort of, I kind of touched on this. And what I meant to sort of imply was that when, if people talk about, you know, the loss of cohesion or neighborliness or whatever, the fact is 
the huge effect on that was, was really on internal migration since the 18th century, much greater. And uh, probably the, the most, the nastiest racial conflict in, in our recent history has been between Irish, Irish and English in places like Liverpool or in, or in Glasgow. I mean, it's, it's very little to do with migration from outside. So, I mean, inter- but then your question is not really about the, the history, I think. It's about, it's about internal migration today. Um, of course, people have always been complaining about London, ever since, certainly since the Middle Ages, about London as being an unhealthy drain on the rest of the country. Um, um, well, I don't know whether it is or not, but it, if it, it, there's not much we can, not, not a lot we can do about it, unless Mr. Osborne's northern powerhouses prove proved to be uh, unexpectedly successful. <laughs> but. Um, I mean, I think movement around the country is, 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 is natural and has been going on for centuries and will no doubt continue. If you don't have that movement, then there's something, there's something wrong. And what you, know, what, what you then have is the creation of pockets of poverty and, and exclusion, which, which affect not migrants from outside, but an immobile underclass of our own population. And indeed, it seems to me that one of our most serious social problems is precisely that, it's not that, um, that the children of migrants are being, are being discriminated against and badly treated in schools like the one that you referred to, but often it's the, it's the children of the, of, the, of the white working class in, 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 in economically depressed parts of, of England who are, who, are not, who are the ones who are really missing out and for whom not very much is being done because they're not, I suppose, very visible until perhaps they start voting for UKIP or the... Or the, or, the, or, the, uh, or, the, or the British National Party. But I think, you know, the, the, more, the more movement you have, the, the healthier it probably is, like, like blood in a body. In a way, wouldn't you say there's so much movement in England and Britain now that regional and, indeed, metropolitan pride is probably weaker than it, than it, than it was 100 years ago? Ah, well, I'm not sure people in the north of England think that, but... Uh, I mean, Londoners have always been pretty pleased with themselves. I speak as a provincial boy, of course. Uh, and, uh, of course, we always think of Londoners as being, you know... Um, are you a Londoner, Robert? No. <laughs> we always think of people who live in London as, as thinking rather too highly of themselves and having all the, having, having all the privileges. Uh, but that, again, is something that is certainly not unique to this country but is probably a part of life wherever there is a dominant capital city. I only meant that in uh, former times, someone from Kent would have thought that someone from Essex or Suffolk was a, a bloody foreigner and an infidel, <laughs> and that has weakened just because the focus has enlarged of people's I, I suppose it has, though I, I, I quote in the book somewhere, I, I found it quite by chance in, in an old edition of, of the Encyclopedia Britannica, some a 16th century literary critic, his advice to poets was not to use any form of English that was not spoken within 30 miles of London. Because anything further than, from that, from London, was, was, was provincial and vulgar. Perhaps that attitude is completely gone. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not completely gone, no. <laughs> maybe weaker. We have time for one more question, I think. Right at the back. Thank you. Think against the background of history and recent European experience. Uh, laws that protect the heir to the throne from any fit marrying an immigrant um, can be sustained. So I didn't hear that very well. I think. Um, what that, that laws that protect the heir to the throne from marrying an immigrant can oh, be sustained. Right. 
Well, I don't think it protects, prevents him from marrying an immigrant. It prevents him from marrying a Catholic, <laughs> however, however blue-blooded and English that Catholic might be. Uh, sorry, but can you, can you envisage, um, with the same most oh, kind of laws, for someone of a different race? Uh, oh, no, I can't, I can't imagine that happening. I mean, I, if, if, we still had, um, if, if royal marriages were still arranged on diplomatic grounds, then I expect we'd have, um, we'd have had Prince William being married off to... Um, to, a, to an Indian or a Chinese or, a, or, an, or, or perhaps an Arab princess. To, to, uh, to, so I don't think there'll be any question of, of not wanting that. Uh, I think I expect that a lot of people in, in the Foreign Office and perhaps in the Royal Family would be delighted if, if a prince fell in love with a, a suitable young lady of another race. Uh, but, uh, and perhaps it will happen fairly soon. But uh, I, I, I think, the, uh, of course, the, the Catholic thing remains as a, a relic of 17th century conflicts. Um, and, and yet, and now it seems, of course, absurd. The only thing is that at the time it was the assertion of the power of the nation over the monarch. In most European states, the people were supposed to adopt the religion of their ruler. Uh, it, after the Glorious Revolution... Uh, England's ruler was required to adopt the religion of the people. So I think, okay, now we should, we should abolish it, but uh, it, it remains as a relic of, um, of something quite important, and which was, after all, something that ended, largely ended religious wars in, in, in England. Though, as you also point out, there aren't that many English monarchs who, um, who had English as a first language. Uh, not until um, George III, who, was, uh, who, who expressed great pride in, in being a Briton. So if they'd married someone from Surrey, they'd have been marrying a foreigner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we have, to, uh, we have one... Oh, two more questions. We had a hand up for there someone another over reason. There, someone over there, too. Um, There's a question just in front of me, yes. Sorry, um, this, we need to lower this. I think there have been some over there. Whilst I acknowledge that... Uh, we have had a history of tolerance and acceptance for immigrants in this country. Um, certainly, that's reflected amongst the sort of people that attend lectures like this. To me, there seems to be a rise of racism and xenophobia on a large chunk of the population here, which is perhaps being whipped up by the, by the whole debate regarding Europe. How can we, in your opinion, combat the rise of these, what I would consider to be unhealthy attitudes? Ooh, um, I think, I think, well, I mean, we, we, we've been quite good at st- of preventing unhealthy attitudes. I mean, the, the power of, um, of the media and indeed of the law has proved to be remarkably effective. I'm old enough to remember when people opposed the Race Relations Act on the grounds that the law couldn't change the way people thought or behaved, but it, it certainly has done that, it seems to me. Um, and I think the, um, uh, one of the things that's very popular, and I'm not, this, is, this is not me putting human nature very, very highly, as it were, is that people hate um, being thought to be old-fashioned or provincial or stupid. And, and a lot of the attitudes that, that, that you and I, that we would regard as undesirable, have been quite successfully per, um, uh, portrayed in that way. Uh, so I think, I think that in some senses the propaganda war, if it's that, is, is being is being won. I think um, there's, there's very little over... It seems to me, at least, that at least... And you might say, I live in an ivory tower, which I admit I do. One, one doesn't come across many examples of overt racism now, whereas a generation ago, they were very common and regarded, indeed, as 
you know, every Englishman's birthright was to, was to be racist. Now very few people would, 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 would defend it. So I think, you know, the attitude to China... Now, OK, attitudes towards Europe are, are different, and that's an entirely different question, which I'd be very happy to speak about on another occasion, if I were ever asked to, but perhaps not this evening. <laughs> One final question, gentlemen at the back. A, a kind of crystal ball question about the future of the nation state yeah. and uh, I'm from the kingdom of the East Saxons so if you don't understand my English let me know um, <laughs> so I, I, I realize at the moment the whole idea of borders is very much on our minds um, Britain's relationship with Europe international issues but as you're saying about the kind of this being where even the idea of a nation state our modern idea began um, I'm also seeing pressures that are pushing more towards multi-regional or regional identities. Europe, in some ways, maybe the U.S. has been the model for the post-nation state already. And I wonder if it's possible to look maybe forward with a with a bigger view as to what might be the future of that, or if it, if we're just too close to it. Yeah. Well, historians always say they don't like foretelling the future, and it's partly cowardice, and it's partly, I think, the fact that. Y- if you study history, you realize how much is uncertain and how much is contingent and how difficult it is to predict anything except the most obvious trends. And even then, it's very difficult to get the timing right. And you can say, oh, well, it will certainly be the case that the world population will continue to increase until it reaches a critical point. But then nobody knows. And if you can't say how, how, when it will be or how it will happen, there's not much point in predicting it. Well, as you said, I've been kind of arguing for the continuing vitality of the nation-state. But who knows if that vitality will actually continue. It could be that borders will disappear. Now, the thing that worries me about that, I think we've seen on a very accelerated scale in, in Germany and other parts of Europe over the last few weeks, in which people start by saying, we welcome these these people in distress, and we want them to come, and we're there to welcome them. You know, sort of three weeks later, everyone's sort of terrified. I mean, I'm afraid that that's, that seems to me um, an almost inevitable reaction if, if it seems that borders are simply, being, are, simply being, are simply falling down without any control over the process. I think it seems to me that people are very willing to... Well, okay. People are relatively willing to accept change, and to accept that they have duties to others if they feel that there is some control over the process. It seems to me that if if the idea is allowed to grow that whatever it is, whether it's globalization or mass migration or the end of of borders, then people are likely to react in a very very negative way. Um, It might happen anyway, but it will not, I think, be be an easy an easy ride, as it were. I think it would, be, it would be a rather traumatic change and it will produce a lot of nasty side effects. That's a very happy moment on which to end. Um, <laughs> Can't I, I mean, say something nice then? I think... But people are very adaptable, aren't yeah, they? they? I are. mean, one of my favourite anecdotes, and I mean, we must always remember that uh, migration being so natural and ancient a force, as you've so eloquently put it tonight... Um, it's just an expression of human adaptability. One of my favourite anecdotes from the relatively recent past was the German after the Second World War who was in England. 
And he was always melancholy, and his friend said, well, what are you so gloomy about? And he said, well, you know, it's terrible being a German at this time, and that was obvious. And his friend said, well, what you've got to do, you've got to change your name from Schmidt to Smith, and you've got to go to Savile Row and get a proper English suit, and you've got to drink a bucket of port every morning, and you've got to shoot a few pheasants, and you've got to hang cricket prints in your office, and don't worry, it'll all change. And a little while later, he ran into him, a few months later, and he'd done all those things, and he looked immaculate, and he spoke accentless English, and he looked absolutely marvellous. And yet he's still profoundly melancholy, and his friend said, well, what on earth is the matter? And he said, we lost the empire. (laughs) (laughs) So I think human adaptability often wins over these uh, pessimistic things. But thank you so much, uh, Robert Toombs. Marvellous evening. I thought we all thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.